Hello and welcome to Poetry But Make It Relevant, your host Isabel Hodgson. Today we're going to be doing a bit of a different episode to what we've been doing before. This will just be me talking essentially. Um, I won't be interviewing any young poets um, but I realise in this show I use a lot of poetry terms like modernism or romanticism and most of the people that I interview are already familiar with these kinds of terms. Um, and the reason for that is, is that either they study English literature or because they're poets, they've taken influence from um, previous poetic movements like modernism or romanticism are two really famous ones. You also have metaphysical. Um, I personally want to wanted to talk about modernism and romanticism at this point I'm saying it so much um because I think it's actually um it's not only something that most people will study at school especially the romantics um but also I found that they're sort of um the most common uh thing that people think of when they think of poetry either they think of um people like T.S. Eliot or E. Cummings, um, who are really great examples of people who kind of took typical and classical poetry and and made it something that was a bit more groundbreaking. That's not to say that the Romantics weren't groundbreaking; they absolutely were. But um, kind of from our perspective, our modern perspective. Um, the modernists was, are still groundbreaking, even kind of a hundred years on, um, and the romantics we kind of associate with very stereotypical ideas of poetry. Um, so today we'll talk about some kind of famous uh, poets from these movements and what the movements were really about. So let's start off with modernism because M is first in the alphabet. So modernism, I would say, was a cultural movement rather than just a poetic movement. Um, it was a design movement as well. You have really um, famous design houses like Bauhaus, uh, one of my favourite um, design groups uh, of all time. Um, they were a German school. Um, of basically like metalwork and painting and basically any kind of design or art. Um, and the reason I'm bringing up the art side of modernism as a movement is that art was massively influential to modernist poets as well. Um, something that's quite common in modernism is something called ekphrasis, which is another term I like to use. And essentially all ekphrasis is, it's a really fun word for me to sound clever, but all it really means is um, a piece of literature that describes something, or describes a, an object or a piece of art. Um, I also talk a lot about classics uh, in these episodes, and um, ekphrasis kind of got really famous um, in the Aeneid, or, you know, to my understanding. I'm not, I'm not um, an expert, but I just kind of have an interest. Um, and Ekphrasis, um, there's a really famous example of it in the Aeneid, written by Virgil, um, where it describes um, the shield of Aeneas, 
um, which has been made for him. Um, and this kind of copies um, a part in the Iliad, an ekphrasis in the Iliad, which is about the shield of Achilles. Um, and incidentally, a very famous modernist poet um, takes this reference really literally, um, and Auden writes a poem called The Shield of Achilles. Um, now, most of you probably know someone like Auden. Auden's a famous modernist poet. Most of you will probably know Auden and not realise it. Um, he d has done some really famous poems like The Funeral Blues, and A Funeral Blues is read out in uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. So if you've ever seen that film... Um, the poem that's read at the funeral um, is an example of one of Auden's poems. So we'll come back to this poem later because I think it's a great example um, of kind of modernist ideas. Um, so let's talk about what do, what do modernist ideas mean? Well, modernism kind of, I would say, started in about 1880, but that's, that's kind of, I would say, the earliest it really started kicking about. Um, and I would say finished about 1950, but its peak, its true peak was probably 1915 to 1930. So these dates might stick out to us, particularly because um, we'll remember that the First World War uh, happened around this time, so from 1914 to 1915. Um, other things that were happening um, that kind of influenced or kind of maybe even made the modernist movement happen. It uh, depends whether you think that um, life influences art or art influences life. Um, another reason that the modernist movement really came about was uh, post-industrial revolution, um, the isolation that people felt um, and also the kind of increased urbanisation at the time, um, Essentially, there was just a lot of focus on production and uh, society was becoming more and more capitalist um, and more and more focused on kind of wealth and um, exciting, like flashing things, bells and whistles, um, which some people say is what the Art Deco movement represents because it's all about kind of beauty and form and details and it's influenced by discovering of uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, a massive cultural event, um, and Art Deco really loves all of these kind of like rich ideas, and then modernism was kind of the antithesis to that in a lot of ways. It was and it wasn't, because Art Deco was still about modernity, and obviously it's kind of in the name, but so was modernism. Um, and so the thing with uh, that really influenced modernist poetry was this, this sense of isolation that people were feeling. Um, after kind of the First World War and all of this industrialization and urbanization, there was a complete disconnect from nature. Um, also, on top of that, Freud was a massive influence on this movement because it was the it was a very introspective movement and it thought a lot about the subconscious and psychology and stream of consciousness. Um, and that definitely comes across in the work that we see coming from around this time period. Another influence on the modernist movement was just kind of the deconstruction of language. Um, it seems kind of like the logical next step 
is as soon as you've got to a point where the language or in in the eyes of the people at the time language had kind of been perfected by the romantics to an extent um and modernism was a reaction to that and wanted to essentially distill language to crack it apart and see how it reacted um so a really two really famous um examples of this is um or is poets who are a great example of doing this is uh E.E. E. Cummings and William Carlos Williams uh fantastic name um William Carlos Williams uh wrote a poem called The Red Wheelbarrow which I'll read for you now um because I think that it's hard to understand what I'm talking about the deconstruction of language um unless you hear the poetry so um I'm going to read it now. So much depends upon a red wheel, barrow, glazed with rain, water, beside the white chickens. And that's that's the poem. That's the poem. Um, it's four stanzas of two lines. Um, the first, the first line of every stanza has three words. And the second line of every stanza has one word. And a lot of people will read that. And that, this is a fair reaction. Um, and will say, that's ridiculous. That's not poetry. But what the modernists really wanted to do was question what we think poetry actually is. Um, does it have to be beautiful language that sings like a song? Or does it have to be really meaningful do you have to be able to find meaning in something for it to be poetry and do you need imagery like you know how do you create images what does it mean um and so what the word red wheelbarrow does is not only does it kind of take this very new wave uh perspective that essentially has a poem that's purely about a very basic image that's all it is. It's really just an image, um, which w we could read ma meaning into. Some people like to think that um, this is kind of an agricultural, um, an agricultural image intentionally to kind of combat uh, ideas of urbanization. Um, but on the other hand, it also has a fairly rigid structure. Um, like I said, I can summarise the poem's structure very quickly um, in that, I, you know, it's four stanzas and all of them kind of have the same word count. Um, and it's one of the first times, usually in poetry, structure is kind of measured by rhyme or metre. So either kind of what the rhyme structure is, is it rhyming couplets? Is it like, you know, A-A-B-B? Or the metre... Um, you know, is the meter like iambic pentameter, or you know, is is there a you know certain level of syllables like in a ballad, like five seven, I think five six. Um, but this um, this does it actually by word count, which I think is really interesting. This isn't one of my favourite poems, I have to say, um, but I do think it's worth it's worth talking about because it's it's so it was so groundbreaking at the time. Um, 
because no one had kind of taken this and said, well, this is, this is poetry. Um, and honestly, at the end of the day, William Collis Williams, if you have time, um, did a great talk about his poetry, um, which is recorded. I think he gave a lecture at Harvard or some very um, famous American university. And um, you'll be able to find it on Apple Podcasts if you just look up William Collis Williams. Um, and essentially, um, a lot of people like the poem because it's it's not got all of this meaning. It's not, you know, ridiculously long or doesn't talk about ideas like life and death and love. You know, it's not dramatic. It's more like real life in that it's just an image of a wheelbarrow. It's just life. It's very simple um, and sweet and you don't have to read anything into it. I think that a lot of people tend to dislike poetry now because they feel they have to find something within it. And when they can't and when it's really difficult to find what is quote unquote the truth in their poetry um they really they really struggle with wanting to do that because poetry isn't always easy to read it's sometimes really challenging um and actually the modernist movement is a really great example of kind of doing that of really hiding its meaning um and being extremely challenging um a really great example of um someone who did this was Marianne Moore and Marianne Moore uh, wrote extremely complicated poems um, often very influenced by Freudian ideas um, and she did a famous one called To a Bird and um, it's kind of about writing poetry and the mind she was a great lover of birds and the poems that I've read of hers um, she really intentionally hides meaning and she uses extremely complicated language really really um, pretentious words um, as do a lot of modernists I think a lot of modernism is very pretentious and very elitist um, and that's intentional these were kind of the upper echelons of literature society people really really wanted to be impressive um a great example whenever i think of this is um james joyce who wrote ulysses um a lot of people love that book and i am sure that it is um one of the most important pieces of literature i don't think i could read it it's not very enjoyable um but I mean, I think some people really do adore it. Um, one of the teachers at my school would go to um, a meeting every year held by James Joyce fans. Um, and I don't still to this day don't understand uh, how he read it and how he's read it. It's 800 pages of pure just comp. Like, honestly, if you get a chance, look up one page of James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, and I think that that's a great example of the kind of elitist culture that modernism created with literature because it was all about I I mean I think this is just my <laughs> idea of it I am just a uni student on the radio um 
is it was all about kind of posturing how clever and cool you were and a lot of them were very clever and very cool which is why they did well but um sometimes it seems a little bit ridiculous to me um but Marianne Moore was a brilliant poet um but was an example of this these really complex narratives uh in poetry or you know kind of not narratives there wasn't as much storytelling in modernist poetry on the whole um and I think part of that was again a reaction against kind of traditional literature formats um a lot of modernism came from the US um and Europe generally um or Americans living in Europe or English people living in Europe so a lot of the ideas that were presented especially because America had such a massive influence was um, definitely a sense of kind of ultra modernity and really really encouraging a connection with machinery in a weird way I think um, one person who I think is a great example of this is Robert Frost um, who actually does write a lot of poems that are kind of based in nature um, two woods what's it two paths diverging yellow wood and one of his most favorite and that's all about um paths in a wood um but one of his poems that really sticks out to me is called the cult and the cult is about a little a little horse um and what it kind of talks about a little bit is actually a reaction against nature it's all it's kind of about mankind being able to control nature um and i find that very interesting because usually with poetry it tends to lean towards a more kind of natural and loving and i don't i don't even know how to put it but um generally tends to be on the side of god and um what is natural whereas um robert frost doesn't do that in this poem which is why i i find it so fascinating it's not i would say one of my favorite poems i'm not a massive fan of robert frost but i do think he's a very good poet um and this poem is kind of all about um being young and breaking the rules and also um controlling nature because it's all about this kind of horse who um is scared by the snow and is running around a lot of people add a kind of anti-war narrative to it because it seems like a little boy who's afraid of kind of fighting or anything i think something shocks him like a noise or the snow this horse um and a lot of people took that for like the snows in France where people were fighting during the First World War or, um, you know, obviously the noises of war and generally people being too young um, and still going to fight anyway. And actually a lot of people take the same message from um, Auden's Field of Achilles, which I mentioned earlier, um, which describes um Thetis who is Achilles's mum talking to Hephaestus who's making the shield or not even talking I think they're just interacting and 
she um, looks or it describes her looking over his shoulder expecting to see great cities and dancing people and kind of happiness and culture and what what she really sees is kind of barren plains of you know half dead men and basically just describes war in this um, very realistic way um, that just kind of strips it from the glorification and um, it's very interesting to see what was probably quite a political message targeted at the British government but he places it in the context of this classical setting um, which was incidentally also um, a big influence on a fair amount of um, modernist writing. You can see it in T.S. Eliot a lot that he will reference um, kind of classical figures. Um, I do want to talk more about T.S. Eliot now actually um, and we'll go in detail into his poem Love Song for J. Alfred Prufrock because it's one of my favourite poems. Um, I don't, I think I would really dislike T.S. Eliot if he was a real person in real life. Well, no, he was a real person. I just mean, um, if I had met him and if I had to think, if I think about him as a real person, I find him quite annoying. But um, definitely his poetry is some of my favourite um, stuff. We don't really have time, obviously, to go through The Wasteland, which is one of the defining modernist texts written by Eliot. Um, but we will go through uh, Love Songs of J. Alfred Prufrock. Um, so it starts with um, a section from Dante's Inferno, I believe. Um, and it's, I think, when he's being toured round hell, essentially. And we'll go more into the meaning of that later. But literally translated, it means, if I thought that my reply were given to anyone who might return to the world, this flame would forever st would stand forever still. But since never from this deep place has anyone returned alive, if what I hear is true, without fear of infamy, I answer thee. So essentially, I can't actually remember who um, who's taking him on a tour, um, but basically he's about to spill all of Hell's secrets because he knows that no one's ever left Hell before. Okay, so let's continue on uh, to the actual uh, poem that T.S. Eliot wrote. Um, and the first few lines, I'm sure you will recognise, they are very famous. Let us go then, you and I, in the evening, spread out like a patient eyes upon a table. Let us go through half his deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. In the room, women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes. Licked its tongue into the corners of the evening. Lingered upon the pools that stand in drains. Let fall upon its back that falls from the chimney, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, 
and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time. To prepare a face to meet the face that's unique, there will be a time to murder and create, and a time for all the works and days of hand that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me, a time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of toast and tea. In the room, women come and go, chalking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bold spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is grown thin, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all. Have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all. The eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways. And how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight drowned with light brown hair. Is it a perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap around a shawl. And should I then presume? And how should I begin? Shall I say I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. And the afternoon, the evening sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor here beside you and me, should I, after tea and cakes and ices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted, wept and prayed, though I have seen my head, grown slightly bold, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. And would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it around towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one settling a pillow on by her head should say, that is not what I meant at all, that is not it at all.
And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets? After the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor? And this and so much more. It is impossible to say just what I mean. But as if a lan magic lantern threw the nerves in a patterned on the screen, would it have been worthwhile if one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and running towards the window, should say, that is not it at all, that is not what I meant at all. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was I meant to be. I am an attendant lord, one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt, an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious and meticulous, full of high sentence, a bit obtuse, at times, indeed, almost ridiculous, almost at times, a fool. I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves, blown back. When the wind blows the water, white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea. By seagulls breathed in seaweed red and brown, till human voices wake us and we drown. So that's the end of that poem. And it's extremely long <laughs> for something to be read on radio, but it is the one I wanted to um, talk about today. And first off, let's let's just start thinking about how we could relate to this poem because you can probably find all of the analysis and stuff in a classroom or on the internet on spark notes or something um and i think it's more interesting to talk about what it might mean for us now um firstly something that really struck me reading it again is i kind of know logically that there's a lot of repetition but um we i forget how much there actually is and I think the sense that I definitely get from the poem is um, is an anxiety about how to have a life that matters and worrying about everything and making trying to make sure that you you're influential on people and people you know don't just look at your balding head or your skinny legs um, and when he says I have measured my life out on coffee spoons think that that's one of the most beautiful lines in poetry um just kind of saying like my life is not measured in kind of great acts or by statues being made of me I've measured my life in the mundanities um he, sp he spends a lot of time talking about tea and cakes um because that's his daily routine and the kind of the reality of this poem is is striking um he can't you know he just paints our lives in a very real way and um if i go towards the end there's a really brilliant um i think it is a really great um stanza to show anyone who needs an introduction to um 
uh, literature because it kind of summarizes Shakespeare in a weird way and also kind of our relation to Shakespeare in modern life um, where Hamlet is meant to be um, easy to identify with um, because he's kind of this character that you're meant to be able to relate to and that's why he's a good tragic character is because we might almost see ourselves in him arguably this is this is just an argument um feel free to disagree um but he says no i am not prince hamlet nor was i meant nor was meant to be am an attendant lord one that will do um to swell a progress starts he not to i'm sorry i can't reading read stop reading it's so brilliant um He's basically just saying, I'm I'm just kind of a, another extra in the play. I would never kind of bring the play to its crisis moment. I'm not that influential. You know, I might have some kind of hand in the events that uh, occur, but he's um, deferential and glad to be of use. Um, but then we get at, towards the end, he says, at times, indeed, almost ridiculous almost at times, the fool. And the fool is a character in King Lear, actually. Um, and it's one of those classic tropes that you'll find in literature of, you know, the one who's meant to be ridiculous, the one who's meant to be the servant, or, you know, blah, 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 blah. You see it in Faustus as well. Um, but the one who's meant to be ridiculous and silly and stupid is actually the one who's giving the most insight in the play and that's what the fool does the fool in king lear is incredibly intelligent and is his his kind of purpose is weirdly to create a sense of reason in the play without um without making any sense and i think that when you put that in the context of this poem um the fool here kind of represents um that this person is important in a way it's just in a fairly as he puts it obtuse way um he's sort of ridiculous but gives real insight into how we all feel um like the fool um he says do i dare eat a peach which i think is ridiculous but and really funny i do think this poem is actually quite funny um, but it's also, um, when he says things like that, you know, shall I part my hair behind? These are the kinds of things that we worry about day to day, you know, like what, what clothes are going to go together? You know, shall I wear white flannel trousers? And, um, I think that that's really sweet that he kind of, um, talks about that and you can <laughs> decide whether or not he's calling that a type of hell that we're in. Because obviously I said we'd go back to the first passage and, um, a lot of people speculate that um, the reason he put in this bit about being stuck in hell um, is that the character is kind of like, oh, I can say what I want now because you're not going to do anything about it because you're not going to leave. Um, and it's kind of that, not only is that, that anxiety, but basically he's saying that we're trapped in a hell of our own making because we're not able to do or say what we need. Um, and I find that uh, I find that very interesting. Um, T.S. Eliot is also, I, to be fair, I said that I would really like him in real life, but he does have one of my favourite quotes of all time, which is, um, good 
what's it? Good poets um, are influenced by other work. I'm not, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I'm paraphrasing. Um, so good good poets are influenced by other work, but um, great poets steal. Um, and in his poem, T. S. Eliot does steal lines. Um, he or parts of lines. Um, Robert Browning was T. S. Eliot's favorite poet of all time. Robert Browning um, wrote uh, a lot of kind of perspective poetry, very character poetry. You might recognize um, some of his poetry as the one about the woman who um, gets strangled with her own hair. Um, so he, he steals um, one of Robert Browning's lines. Um, he actually quotes um, Meeting at Night, which I remember studying at GCSE. <laughs> um, it's one of those poems. I do. I love Robert Browning. I'm not being rude about him. I just prefer his wife, Elizabeth, um, who also wrote poetry um, and was fantastic. So if you get a chance, please look her up. So T.S. Eliot steals this um, steals this line when he says each to each because Robert Browning says uh, hearts beating each to each uh, a lot in the poem and it's all about these people meeting at night and it's really rather sweet. Um, and so this bit kind of reminds us of this very like sweet and passionate love, um, but it's the mermaid singing. And they're otherworldly. So the way that I read this, and you know, you can disagree, is that this um, there's a kind of otherworldliness to passion, and real passion is almost impossible to find. Um, it's it's something that you find in literature and books, in myths of mermaids. Um, this this love that you know, singing each to each. Um, and I think I mean it's an incredibly sad poem. Um, and, you know, it's the human voices that wake us and we drown at the end of the poem. Um, and I think that part of that is saying that, you know, weirdly humanity is what kills the soul. Um, and so to me, it's a, it's a poem all about the anxieties of life um, and feeling trapped. But I actually find it um, very liberating in a way to feel like, no, this is, I mean, and I, I, to be honest, he was, he was mocking this. Uh, he was mocking this person. Um, the name of the poem, uh, Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, is, um, the word Prufrock is actually um, meant to be a play on prude and a frock. So he's, um, he's mocking this person, but um, I find a massive amount of solidarity in this poem um, of someone else who's just very scared about um, how they affect people and wanting to be important to people but um kind of acknowledging that that's not going to be the reality of things and just trying to do its very best um and i i have to say i love that i love the the relatability of it i think it's something that a lot of modern teenagers struggle with especially with social media is anyone can be anyone and seemingly very normal people get very famous very quickly um like, I mean, I don't know, all of these TikTok stars who just kind of started by making weird videos and um, now are, you know, famous, like whether you're on kind of the dance TikTok or more comedy and, I don't know, alt, I guess. People just call it straight and alt TikTok, but 
I always feel a bit peak calling it um, and I think that there's 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 a sense of the kind of anxiety um, of needing to be someone, especially because you're always surrounded on the internet by people who are becoming someone. Um, and the reality is, is that um, we all just kind of want to be important to someone, um, whether or not it's to masses of people or whether it's the woman whose perfume is really nice, I can't remember where it is, or what the exact line is, but it's something about liking her perfume and looking at her dress. Oh, yeah, it's a perfume from dress that makes me so digress. Arms that lie along a table or wrap around a shawl. Um, this also, to be fair, this part of the poem, I was like, this man needs help. <laughs> he needs someone to help him get with a woman, um, which I, you know, I think is quite funny. Um, Anyway, I, I just remember reading that and being like, man's really needs a, a wingman. Um, but anyway, so this is kind of what I get from this poem. And there's a lot of other things to say about this poem. You know, it's so long and we haven't even gone into half of it. Um, I mean, less than half, probably 1%. Because um, it's all about age and there's also religion. And he talks about John the Baptist. Um, if you listen to the line about... Um, his head being served on a platter. I've seen my head on a platter. Um, that's all about being John the Baptist, and that's why he's not a prophet. So even though he's seen his head on a platter, he's not John the Baptist because he's not a prophet. Um, basically the message of that stanza. Um, but yeah, there is so much more I'd like to say on this poem, and maybe I'll come back to it on, a, on another episode. But um, for now, I realise I've already spent 40 minutes on modernism. So I'm going to start on romanticism, um, just so that we've got a kind of neat episode, um, and I can always go back to these things I can tell myself now. So let's get into uh, main poets in romanticism and what kind of romanticism was about. So romanticism was really focused on, it was a reaction to um, kind of the start of industrialization, and um, it was all about kind of returning to nature and there's also kind of reaction to the Enlightenment movement, which was all about kind of science and arguments. And uh, well, I'll I'll do another episode about the Enlightenment, but um, primarily Romanticism was all about um, being kind of anti-imperialist, um, loving nature, being uh, putting a lot of stress on the fact that um, God should be found in nature and beauty and goodness rather than religion it was very anti-hierarchy um and i think you'll recognize probably the names of these poets because they're you know some of the most famous poets i would say um so people like keats john keats was probably i i don't know if he's the most famous um romantic some would say he is depending on where you went to school probably <laughs> or which one you studied at gcse um because a lot of people did Carol Ann Duffy, um, and who wasn't a romantic. Sorry, I just said that because um, uh, she gets complained about um, a lot, but I think she's pretty swell. Um, anyway, so also William Wordsworth, um, who wrote writes a lot about that um, and the Lake District, um, and he's a pretty okay guy. Uh, we actually studied him this week. Um, at my course at Edinburgh um, 
and I found out that the poem that we were reading, which was called Lines, but it, I mean, it's called, people call it Tintin Abbey, was written on my birthday. It was written on July the 13th. Uh, <laughs> I was I was sitting on that piece of information on tutorial. I didn't mention it because I thought that that would be really awkward. But um, I was very proud of myself sitting there. Um, so yes, uh, Tintin Abbey is an example of one of Wordsworth's. Um, I can't remember the one that's about the daffodils. I should be able to. I'm running a poetry podcast, but I don't. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll look it up later. Um, he was also massively famous. Southie, uh, one of the granddaddies of <laughs> romanticism, as my uh, teacher in sixth form referred to him. Um, I didn't study romanticism, but we, I don't know, we still accidentally learned about it because they, they're everywhere. One thing that you'll know if you look into poetry is uh, their romantics are everywhere. Um, also, um, Coleridge, massively famous, um, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I don't know if, uh, I, I had a weird teacher, so we ended up doing that year seven, and I completely did not understand what the hell was going on. Um, I just was like, who's this old man? There's a skeleton ship, what? Um, but Coleridge's uh, Ancient Mariner is a really great example of someone who betrays nature by shooting an albatross, um, and then he's punished, and then he has to go around telling his story. Um, and uh, it's got one of my favourite my favorite <laughs> lines, which I always sing to people when I want to creep them out, um, which is, Water, water everywhere, and all the water drink. Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. It's all about being in the sea, and um, I don't know. It just, it just, he just. The ancient mariner, by the end of it, it's basically like a strip of beef, strip of dried beef. I wanted to call it biltong because uh, my mum's South African, but um, I wanted to be relatable, so I was about to call it beef jerky, um, but I just couldn't do it. So a, a strip of leather. Let's go with that. Um, so Coleridge as well, um, Percy Shelley, husband of Mary Shelley, um, who wrote Frankenstein, um, who's super cool, Mary Shelley, daughter of um, Mary Words Wordsworth, Mary Wollstonecraft, um, <laughs> Mary Wordsworth, I didn't even watch this, um, but uh, no, she, who was essentially the original feminist in quote marks, um, because she has the first um book uh at least in english literature that we know that was published about um the rights of women and basically saying hey a woman can be smart too um i don't know if i agree with her i i think she's uh she's a bit of a lost one there um but those are those are some of the, some of the key romantics william blake as well who was also a painter um which i didn't know until very very recently um, and I was so excited to find out because I love the intersection of poetry and art, uh, hence why I started off this podcast talking about um, the modernist movement and Bauhaus, which, if again, I say this a lot on the podcast, but um, if you get a chance to look up, please, please, please look up Bauhaus. Um, you'll recognise their stuff. Uh, Apple <laughs> basically ripped off half of it. Um, as in the in terms of design philosophies and I'm sure you'll recognize a, a lot of the kind of fonts and fun stuff um but yes yeah, so uh William Blake as well I've missed people there are so many romantics but um those are kind of the key ones that stick out in my head or you know the ones that I can 
remember or think of. I think it's also um, worth mentioning now that um, you don't have to know everything about poetry to talk about it. I certainly don't. I don't even have a kind of, um, I just have an average English student's um, understanding of poetry, I think. Um, and I think it's a it's a very elitist um, environment at the moment if for anyone that wants to kind of get into poetry, look at it, write it. Um, and I, I just want to say, like, you can still talk about poetry even if um, you don't know all of the romantic poets. I certainly don't um, off by heart. So, um, yeah, I just want to say that because I think that this podcast can sometimes be a little bit poncy, a little bit pretentious, um, which is why I wanted to do this episode. And I want to do more episodes like this where I just sit down and talk about what I know um, and how I feel. I think that um, a lot of the school curriculum at the moment is really focused on just teaching techniques and literary techniques and tutoring kids um, who are kind of studying for their GCSEs and all they have to learn like is oh not all they, they have to be really smart um, but they just have to bash out all of their like like verbs and blah blah blah, blah rather than kind of giving a, an emotional response or a creative response um, to how a poem might make them feel or how they might think about it, how it might change their mind, how it might reflect some kind of social idea, how it affects their life now and how their life makes them view the poem differently. Um, and that's that, I think, is, is really being lost from the education system at the moment. And I think it's a real tragedy that children are growing up not liking poetry because we make it really boring. Um, I certainly didn't like poetry. I really didn't until um, till I started writing it and relating to it. Um, and then I started reading it and being like, oh, now I see what they're trying to do here. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I, that was a little bit of a <laughs> rant about school curriculums. Uh, back to romanticism. So, yeah, it was really focused on nature and being present in kind of what is natural and um making a kind of a point for the everyman the working man um that we need to have better working conditions and it shouldn't all be about machinery and production it really should be about you know connections with people and returning to what is natural and what is right and god in nature rather than god in religion and the church um so i think i will read one uh i, I think i will read a blake poem um i might read london just because i love london um and it's also where i'm from which i probably um so i probably shouldn't read that one i should diversify let's do the chimney sweeper then um which i think really summarizes what i was talking about um about kind of standing up for the working man. Blake is probably the, I would say, the best example of this. Um, I I really love Blake. I think he might be my favourite. Um, so yeah, let me let me start. Uh, the chimney sweeper colon. My mum, my my mother died when I was very young. When my mother died, I was very young. Sorry. Um, when my mother died, I was very young. 
and my father sold me while yet my tongue could scarcely cry weep 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 so your chimneys i sweep and i soot and in soot i sleep here there's little tom darker who cried when his head that curled like a lamb's back was shaved so i said hush tom never mind it for when your head's bare you know that the soot cannot spoil your white hair and so he was quiet and that very night as Tom was a-sleeping, he had such a slight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. And by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. Then down a great plain, leaping and laughing, they run, and wash in a river and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel told Tom if he's a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want joy. And so Tom awoke, and we rose in the dark, and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and warm. So if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. So that obviously, he was, he... Uh, Blake was also a massive advocate for the rights of children, which is partly why he wrote The Chimney Sweeper to kind of expose um, how young children are treated or were treated um, at the time. Um, and it's one of the reasons that people really associate him with uh, Victorian England is because of The Chimney Sweeper, but I, he's definitely a romantic poet. Browning is a good example of a um, Victorian poet. Um, on the whole, I don't love Victorian poetry, but I do like Browning. Um, but obviously, this is what I was kind of saying earlier, it gets that kind of religious message across. So, um, that the, the, the purity of the children um, really comes across. Um, and the, the angel kind of wanting to look after them and protect them. Um, but it's still kind of, despite the fact that the angel has said she does his duty, um, he'll get to he'll get to go to heaven. But um, he still has to wake up and in the dark and go lock himself back into those coffins of soot. Um, so it's a it's a a, a massively uh, tragic poem. Um, but definitely a great example of kind of romanticism and being anti, um, being very anti um, industrialization and exploitation of workers. Um, we're almost done, but I do want to get across a bit more of the nature side of the poetry. So I'm going to, why don't I read Tintin Abbey? Um, because um, that was written on my birthday and it's my radio show after all so i'm gonna make it about me so um here i go five years have passed five summers with the length of five long winters and again i hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a soft inland murmur once again do i behold these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion and connect the landscape the quiet sky under this stark sycamore and view these plots of cottage ground these orchard tufts which at the season with their unripe fruits are clad 
in one green hue, and lose themselves mid groves and copses. Once again, I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive woods run wild, these pastoral farms green to the very door, and wreaths of smoke sent up in silence among, from among the trees with some uncertain notice, as might seem, of vagrant dwellers in the houseless woods, or of some hermit's cave, whereby his fire, the hermit sits alone. So this isn't the whole poem, the poem's a lot longer than that, um, but we're running out of time, and I just wanted to get across um, the, the gentle, natural aspects of the Romantic movement, really exploring our relationship to nature, and um, how we engage with it. Um, I just think uh, one of my favourite lines, it's just such a sweet little example of um, how you remember things. Um, it's all about kind of revisiting memories and um, things like that. And uh, I love I love the line, um, these hedgerows, hardly little, hardly hedgerows, little lines of sportive, sportive wood run wild. Um, I think it's just a really beautiful example of the English countryside and um, I think that it's, yeah, it's a lovely little exploration. It reminds me, this poem, if you get a chance to read it, reminds me of um, talking to your grandma on a train. That's that's the vibe of the poem, I think, and talking about memories and reflecting uh, in a really sweet way. Um, so I better finish up there. Um, so in short, modernism is all about self-reflection and introspection and being isolated and sad and um, romanticism is about nature and God trying to be a nice person basically very I've completely oversimplified that but um, maybe that's for this uh, this podcast anyway because we're, we're running we're, we're not running a high budget production here um, so that's the summary uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode um, I will see you next week. Bye.